0: you are listening to Kubernetes Bytes, a podcast bringing you the latest from the world of cloud native data management. My name is Ryan Wallner and I'm joined by Bob and Shah coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. We'll be sharing our thoughts on recent cloud native news and talking to industry experts about their experiences and challenges managing the wealth of data in today's cloud native ecosystem. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. We're coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. Today is July 7th, 2022. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Let's dive into it. Bobin. first of all, I hope your holiday was nice. Yeah, I suppose you had Monday off and hopefully you did something fun.
2: Yeah, so uh, originally, like, uh, things had to change, but originally my plan was to hit up Acadia National Park and do some camping and hiking but I sprained my ankle on Thursday and oh no. basically there was no point in like traveling and like because I would have just been like sitting at the campfire and doing nothing oh no. so yeah the plans changed last minute uh, I just uh, stayed home uh, we had some friends over, had a good time made some food, that's it great, hopefully staying cool I know you were working out yeah. here <laughs> It, <laughs> yeah, we we did get uh, like while we were waiting for our contractors and, and many spits to be installed, we did get like a portable AC thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So not a window AC, uh, but a portable one, yep. which covers enough of the living room that it keeps the, the house cool. Like with, Yeah, so it worked, worked out.
0: <laughs> Luckily, we haven't had any like terribly like 90. Of course, I'll say this now and like <laughs> no, to
2: you're so. going to yeah. jinx it, Ryan. <laughs> nice.
0: Yeah. How about you? How was your food? Yeah, no, it was good. I spent the week prior um, in Shenandoah, as you know, mm-hmm. which was really nice. And then, uh, like you, stayed around for the, uh, for the actual holiday uh, at the house. We had a bunch of friends over. Uh, didn't do fireworks or anything, but you know, we have a pool this year, so we spent pretty much the entire day in there, uh, which was uh, great. Always good time i had a fire and s'mores at the end of the day which the kids always love so can't complain
2: that's awesome yeah mm-hmm. typical fourth of july weekend i guess <laughs>
0: yeah right i didn't have any hot dogs so ah, i don't know, maybe. Maybe i wasn't truly doing it right but <laughs> <laughs> sure. well we have a really cool guest uh lined up for today uh matthew laray will um uh introduce him in a bit, but um, we're going to talk all about SpeedScale and and what it is and what it does. He's uh, been in the industry for the past 20 years improving uh, performance and uh, of applications across multiple generations with technology. Uh, He's currently the co-founder and CTO of SpeedScale, so I'm sure we'll learn a lot from Matt later on the show. But before we get into that, let's dive into the recent news we have here. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks?
2: I know security was, uh, is, is kind of the focus for now, for at least in the Kubernetes ecosystem. An article came online which, which used like a clickbait number, like, Nine hundred thousand Kubernetes instances yeah. found exposed online, and I was like, okay. And first of all, I was happy that there are close to a million Kubernetes clusters <laughs> <laughs> running in the wild. But if, if you read through the through the article, you will see that the nine hundred thousand number is just a number. If you like, if you like, break it down. Like, okay, five thousand of those uh, give you a, a request is unauthorized, which means that there is a cluster there. If you dive into in, into it even further, only like seven ninety nine Kubernetes. instances instances actually returned a status code 200, which means they can be uh, vulnerable to external attacks. So like 900,000 and then just 799, like it feels <laughs> weird and like, click-baity, but if you, if somebody would have published like, oh, 799 Kubernetes clusters are vulnerable, no, nobody would have clicked on the link. So yeah, this at least yeah. some, some security uh, standards.
0: I know, I had the same reaction I know we read, the, we, we saw this article separately and yeah. we were like we both had the same reaction, I was, wow that was a lot but actually <laughs> nothing that bad is there happening you're like you know, having 443 on the internet you're like, hey okay, that's totally normal um, although there are some examples in that article that you know showcase that there are some out there that just, totally just expose you know, no authentication <laughs> <laughs> and kind of go into it. so definitely not good when you do that but uh, agreed there's good. a lot though I think having you know over 900 or you know, over 1 million I think I saw uh, mm-hmm. uh, a, lot of, a lot of clusters in the
2: world. <laughs> <laughs> okay so following along the security topic right uh, Trivi from uh, Aqua Security uh, Trivi is like their open source scanner tool yeah. uh, it came out with a new release the 0.29.0 release and it added a, a few details like that again they added a, a bunch of features. I would talk about like two or three. So the first thing they added is um, just a view to uh, just a way to look at your RBAC permission. So RBAC def- allows you role based access control, allows you to define your user privileges and who gets access rights and who's allowed to like access, use, modify or delete resources. And then when you're doing RBAC in Kubernetes, you are doing it through roles and cluster roles and service accounts and stuff like that. Uh, if you're running in production, you might have multiple of these uh, without a, a single way to look at what these are and what resources they have access to. So now, using the Trivi UI, you can actually look at all the different RBAC roles, what resources they have access to. So, uh, a neat, neat way to like figure out like what 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 exists in your own cluster. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Uh,
2: then uh, they they Trivy like supports infrastructure as if you have CloudFormation templates or if you have Pulumi. I don't know what they call it, templates, maybe something else. But if you have all of those, uh, Trivi can scan those for you, scan those config files and uh, represent or highlight the misconfigurations. Uh, they expanded that support to include Helm charts as well. So if you're building Helm charts to deploy resources on Kubernetes clusters, Trivi can now scan them, give you uh, the reports on like what's wrong, what, what should be fixed and stuff like that. And then the last thing they added is uh, support for container D-based containers, and so now they can scan those container uh, images or container workloads as well.
0: Yeah, the the scanning of the Helm charts is, I think, something that caught my eye as something mm-hmm. so useful, right? I think a lot of us, um, especially getting into Kubernetes or whether we're designing Kubernetes, using it day to day, we use Helm, right? Um, yeah. And we we often use it use it blindly, <laughs> right? Um, so I think this is a tool that I immediately was like, this is great, you know, being able to just hand over a config and say, can you know, tell me some information about it that you know is it you know is it good to go? Is it you know there is there a glaring defects? Mm-hmm big security flaws. I really like that.
2: Best thing is, it's it's open source, right? There is really no reason why you shouldn't be doing all of this already. So yep. if you're listening to this, try out trivia. <laughs> uh, okay, next, let's focus to, uh, I have a couple of additional uh, pillars, but let's focus to storage for a while. So uh, Cube FS. Uh, it's an open source software-defined uh, Kubernetes distributed storage platform. Uh, I think it, in end of 2019, it became a CNCF sandbox project and then last week it came out that it it has now been upgraded and from a sandbox state it it, it now is in is a CNCF incubating project so uh, it it delivers that cloud native distributed storage compatible with s3 posix or hdfs as the protocols uh, and then like if you look at the the companies that contribute to it there are more than i think 90 developers actively working on it JD.com, Oppo Oppo are some of the vendors that are involved in in maintaining this project. So if you're looking for an open source alternative for the storage system, CubeFS might be one.
0: Yeah. And and for those listening, uh, Cube is spelled with a C in this case. Mm
2: They went the other way.
0: Like, okay, let's not be obvious. <laughs> I think you know, being a cloud native distributed storage, maybe they were going with the C. For ah, a month, you know, but
2: okay.
0: <laughs> not so unless you're just researching, and like, I can't do that has with a K. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs>
2: <laughs> nice. Uh, talking about storage, right? Uh, on that, our storage OS, or, uh, they were previously known as storage OS released. their new version called 2.8. Um, and uh, they added three new features uh, support for full snapshots on demand. So now you have persistent volumes running on OnLad. You can take snapshots and offload them to an S3 repository. Um, it, to run on that, they do require like an etcd cluster. So before this release, they needed like an external etcd instance. Now that's uh, you can check a box or you can select uh, running etcd inside your Kubernetes cluster itself. So that's an option. And then they added support for monitoring using Prometheus and Grafana. So now they have dashboards that you can integrate into your existing Prometheus and Grafana instances and use that to monitor your on that uh, volumes.
0: Absolutely. and I know uh, snapshots are long awaited in the on that community. So this is a really exciting release for them. So uh, kudos.
2: Yeah. And then the final pillar is around just orchestration or communities distributions. Uh, EKS. uh, Everybody knows what EKS is. Uh, Last year, or I think maybe more than that, they announced EKS Anywhere at reInvent and The first phase of EKS Anywhere was running EKS Anywhere on top of VMware vSphere on top of virtual machines and that was a fully supported version. Uh, Last week, they came out with The second phase, which was the EKS Anywhere running on bare-metal nodes. So now you can have those physical servers. Uh, They do have some uh, prereqs in terms of the amount of CPU memory and storage and a special NIC card uh, that they need. Or not special NIC card, but at least it should be able to pixie boot. Uh, If you you meet those uh, requirements on a per-server basis, you can create an EKS Anywhere cluster. On your bare metal nodes, connect it back to your AWS console and use that for running your containerized apps on prem. Uh, They do use some open source projects, so like. Uh, I, I, I personally played with the virtual machine-based EKS Anywhere. So in the workflows, the deployment workflow is kind of similar. Uh, you have an admin workstation. You point it to uh, your bare metal node. So you have to create a hardware inventory file and a cluster file, a cluster configuration file. And it relies on open-source projects like Tinkerbell and Kind for server pro provisioning and bootstrapping, respectively, and then uses cluster API for lifecycle management for your Kubernetes master and worker node. So uh, for for people who were excited about EKS Anywhere, but didn't really want to run it on VMs, this is a great alternative.
0: Yeah, agreed. And I think a lot of people may be looking at something like EKS Anywhere um, in the sort of on-prem bare metal space. So it working mm-hmm. well in this environment uh, is is key, I think. And some of their minimums, right, that they say just a single server only needs four CPU, eight of RAM. Yeah. Storage is very attainable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's exciting for sure.
2: Yeah, and this completes their portfolio, right? Now we have EKS in the cloud, EKS on AWS outposts, EKS anywhere on VM, and EKS anywhere on bare metal nodes. So pretty much everything is covered if you want to use that EKS distribution uh, in at, at any of your uh, data center or uh, public cloud sites. Absolutely. I guess that's it for news for me. Uh, we can we can jump into the speed scale section.
1: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.
0: Great to have you here, Matt. Welcome to Kubernetes bites Let's just jump right into it and tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do.
3: Yeah. So uh, my name is Matt LeRae. I am co-founder and CTO of SpeedScale, an Atlanta-based startup. And uh, what being co-founder and CTO means is basically I, I do a little bit of everything. And... uh so, like, anytime the engineers they write like too good, too high a quality code, I'll go in and I'll add some stuff to help kind of keep the quality down and keep them on their toes a little bit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of what I do. Is a lot of what I do is go is is write our core product and then work on um, interface with customers to make good product decisions.
0: Great. That's uh, well. You know, I think. M- you know, myself, I'm very new to speed scale. I know we had a brief conversation before this podcast, but I think as a great first question is what is speed kit? Sp- what is speed scale and what problems does it really help solve?
3: Yeah. So speed scale is a shift left API testing platform. And it's very different from, uh, normal testing in that we use a, a concept called traffic replay. So in, in essence, uh, I have a passionate hatred of writing test cases. Uh, I have a passionate <laughs> hatred of testing my code, uh, mainly because it shows up that I don't write very good code, but also because the uh, uh, it's just it's tedious, it takes forever and it's always wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so any test cases you write today just wait uh, just wait two weeks and they'll be out of date and you're going to go back and have to mess <laughs> with them. Um, but in addition to that, um, very few engineers are good at guessing what real users will do, uh, mm-hmm. even at the API level. And so, SpeedScale says, let's, let's turn that problem on its head. Let's record what happens in actual production environments. Let's mm-hmm. see what people do. And then we will go and reproduce that into what we call an isolation test. So, we'll go in, we, we monitor a real service. We mm-hmm. just watch it kind of passively. Uh, it works a lot like the way that a, a service mesh works, like Istio, sure. mm-hmm. or we'll go and process or Envoy. And uh, we'll go and we'll get a copy of the traffic. Then we will go and create a set of, uh, air quotes, test cases, right? That'll actually be what real users did. Uh, that, and then we'll drive load into the application using that. But then the other magic trick is uh, we'll remove the need for an integration test environment by also simulating the downstream dependencies. So okay. it works because it's what happened in real life. And, uh, and so, you know, we have all the answers because we saw, if you have like an API, like a, let's say called the Gmail API, we know what Gmail actually said, and so we can reproduce and auto-mock um, mm. all of those third-party and internal APIs. So that's Got in a nutshell.
0: Got it. Now, you know, um, some people like myself—I'll <laughs> call that <laughs> out right now. What does the term "shift left" mean? Well,
3: I mean, <laughs> if you're talking to a marketing person or engineering person, or a <laughs> give me both answers—I'm good with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what? Um, what a uh, I think in you know in, in broad terms, what it means is. It means uh, taking production and moving the engineer and moving the production environment onto the engineer's desktop. Mm-hmm. Or another way of thinking of it is giving giving the engineer magical superpowers to go and, and be able to recreate production and actually sit in the production system uh, instead of having to guess what's actually happening. Got
0: it. I so, like magical superpowers. It's a better answer. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, it saves me from a lot of technical questions <laughs> on how it actually works. Uh, so, um, but yeah, that's, that's the whole idea. So, you know, everybody, you see over the last, you know, some odd years, we've been trying to evolve the way that we support production systems mm-hmm. because um, we're trying to get, uh, you know, you see concepts like DevOps. Mm-hmm. Now you're seeing a further iterations of, of that concept, you know, site reliability engineers sure. or SREs. Yeah. And, a lot of what that's doing is it's trying to bring that automation and and uh, and creative production or uh, problem solving mindset, you know, into you know the production environment. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, one of the best ways to do that is just to get the developers in there. But uh, everyone hates being on call, so it's actually better to shift it left instead of pushing everyone right. Uh,
0: so. <laughs> no,
2: that's that's awesome, right? Because till this point, whenever we have heard shift left, it it has been around security best practices and making sure that you you. Uh, write good code and mm-hmm. uh, push that to production rather than having to secure everything in production. So uh,
0: for fun. API testing, also having to follow the similar path, it's actually great.
2: Yeah,
0: Agreed. And I think, you know, having, like you said, the exact traffic captured from real environments and be able to recreate it is is obviously key to this whole pa- uh, thing. And one thing I have a question about is, you know, you're capturing traffic. How does that actually work? So the, is it, is it Passive in the sense that it doesn't affect any sort of performance of the network. Like, how are you actually capturing that traffic?
3: So there's a number of different ways. The way uh, the way we like to think about it is that traffic capture has existed for sure. many many years, and uh, and so we're, we're not we're not going to hang our hat on just the ability to to capture at a technical level. Yep. So um, we have excellent we have excellent techniques. Like one of the most common ways is folks will mm-hmm. install our sidecar proxy. Mm-hmm. So if you're familiar with Kubernetes, you, you're familiar mm-hmm. with the concept of a sidecar, which yep. basically means a container that rides on top of your, your application container. Sure. And it can do various things. One of the things it can do is it can reroute traffic into a proxy and then uh, reroute at the other side. And so that's that's probably the simplest way that mm-hmm. we work. Now, in addition to that, we also work with things like Istio. Mm-hmm. If you happen to have a service mesh, we'll go ahead and we'll plug into that and let it do some of the work. Um, so we'll do it that way. And then we're even getting into more creative things like, um, like there's a bunch of eBPF technologies, sure. uh, one of which is called Pixie, where they actually can capture payloads. Yep. Uh, that's a, a free open source project, like a monitoring tool. And so, you know, we'll go grab it from there if you want. So we'll, we'll take it from anywhere you can give it. Uh, we actually have customers that will that do direct CSV uploads, which I do not recommend, <laughs> uh, but they do it. Because that's how we can get it out. <laughs>
0: so, uh, flexibility, yeah. flexibility is always a good thing for the most part. Um, maybe not when you're getting giant dumps of CSVs, but I'll leave that to you. I guess. <laughs> no, I like. I know we we started with the second question about like what speed scale
2: is and what it does. Uh, before we get into more technical details, I wanted to like talk about, I was looking up speed scale and I saw that you guys were part of Y Combinator and I think patch 20 or something like that. Can yeah. you talk about more about like that experience, how that was? I know it was in the middle of the pandemic and I know Y Combinator has shifted to this remote com- model as well. Yeah, I believe we were actually
3: the first Y Combinator remote class. Nice. And so, <laughs> yeah, so the, the thing I like to say, uh, or I'll talk about my personal experience with yeah. Y Combinator. Uh, the first thing is, uh, it, it, there's a reason why it's one of the most sought after, uh, you know, um, incubators on the planet. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why, and you can see it when you go through it with them. Um, the expertise available to you is amazing. Uh, the folks that are um, just have done it before, right? They just they've seen it 100 times. When you give your pitch, they're like, they're like, yeah, okay, sure. You know, like, they've seen this 100 times, <laughs> right? And, and it's it's useful to have that. It's like having someone mm-hmm. who's got 1000 years of startup experience yeah. that they can help you with. Uh, and then I'd say another really positive thing for us was uh, um, Y Combinator Demo Day drives a sort of like bidding function with uh, with venture capitalists. And that can be helpful for those that are financially minded. Um, now, as far as the the thing I'd say that was kind of interesting um, was that uh, Y Combinator, uh, we were their first remote class. And I think they were still trying to figure out how to balance um, you know part of that in, in person magic that you get mm-hmm. from getting all these startup founders in the same building obviously we couldn't do that sure. and, and still give us enough help and, and like finding the right balance of providing help without like being redundant or taking up time mm-hmm. and so i think that they probably further evolved that and figured out the right path pattern but you know i highly recommend it obviously it's expensive from an equity standpoint but it yep. can uh, it's worth it so
2: nice awesome so yeah we keep an eye out for i know uh, looking at crunchbase we still did have like the seed funding rounds so we'll keep an eye out and maybe we can share some news whenever you guys raise your next round.
3: Yeah, well, um, yeah, I, lo- I love, love, love that, and uh, we're we're
2: optimistic, and uh, yeah. So <laughs> let's go. Okay, okay. So now yeah. let's like, let's let's switch gears and let's let's talk about Kubernetes, right? Uh, since this is Kubernetes, right? So uh, sure. you already spoke about like how uh, SpeedScale scale works with sidecar containers, but then just from a higher level perspective, and then maybe we can dive deeper. Uh, how does Kubernetes and SpeedScale work together? Uh, how can users like implement it for their applications?
3: Yes, yeah, so we're. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna expand your question a little bit. I apologize, sure. but it, it's yeah. it's relevant. Uh, so the so we were born on Kubernetes. we were born in the cloud. You know, we intentionally built the company around the, these ideas. So uh, at a technical level, uh, we already talked about sidecars and traffic capture. You know, working with any of the cool Kubernetes ways of doing that from eBPF or proxies or whatever. Now what happens from there is um we start streaming traffic out of a service mm-hmm. right then we have an operator if you're familiar with kubernetes operators it's like a, it's like a sysadmin in a box right there um they they're like a, this you know this genius level person who knows how to run just one thing in the cluster so speedscale has an operator for that and we do some pretty clever things or at least i think they're clever uh is that we go through and say um hey that you, you tag that workload with an annotation which is like a text string you can put on a, a workload. You yep. tag that workload. That means we're supposed to test it. So what we'll do is when that workload comes in, we'll freeze it for a second. We will stand up an automatic mocking server. We will stand up a load generator. Then when we rewire the network, we'll do some other kind of some th- other things to sort of tune the, tune the workload. And mm-hmm. then we will run a full load test. And then when we're done, we'll unwrap everything we did and put it back in place just as it was. Mm-hmm. So oh. we do that using Kubernetes operators. Um, now the you know that that kind of magic. Now our pro,
2: our technology does work outside of Kubernetes, but it takes a lot more work. <laughs> it takes a lot more work. No operators do, do make things easier. So uh, as part of that, right? Like since this is still in the development phase, people are still writing code. Uh, can we integrate with something like Jenkins or Jenkins X or, or any other CI CD tools? Right. Yeah. So our our happiest
3: customers use this as part of their CI pipeline. Got it. So there's there's a lot of use cases for traffic replay, but mm-hmm. I'll give you the two most common ones, which is um, folks use us to uh, as mocking servers to actually develop code against. So they'll say, "I cannot stand up, you know, fifty microservices in a production environment." So I'm going to instead, you know, have my um, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually bring it back to the desktop because you can, you know, if you have like Minikube or, or even Docker, mm-hmm. um, you can go and run our mocking server and you'll get kind of like a continuously updated stream of what a production mock looks like. The second thing, and the happiest customers for us are the ones that put us in their CI pipeline. Mm -hmm. So, kind of a model for that is you say uh, every hour we're going to grab the latest and greatest snapshot, right? And then you know, and that's continuously update that that traffic. And then the CI system, every time somebody does a an MR, right? It's almost like a virtual environment. We'll do an MR. We'll run a full battery of tests against it. Um, The simple stuff that everybody expects is like uh, functional tests. We'll make sure there wasn't like an API contract drift. But then we'll do an actual load test because remember we. We understand what the traffic actually means mm-hmm. so we can go and you know make it look like a lot more users and a lot more other stuff going on and then we'll do a third thing which is we'll introduce chaos so those sure. who love chaos engineering uh, we do not compete with like infrastructure chaos engineering what we do instead is it's application level trans- uh chaos engineering so sure. we'll actually slow down individual transactions um we'll say hey give every once in a while throw a 500 like we'll do <laughs> stuff like that you know um and just to keep you on your toes and um yep make you enjoy your life so yeah make sure
2: your <laughs> api uh, requests or
0: responses don't get timed out and stuff like that so no that's yeah <laughs> you can try, test retry loops etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah <laughs> makes sense um you know i think in kubernetes we often talk about a lot of complexity things like operators doing a lot of things for us i think maybe uh an interesting question that i just thought about when you were answering the last one was you know let's take a step back and say you know how does uh API testing differ from other types of testing, such as you know, unit uh, and other types of testing. And, In and what, Narden, school. Yeah, what you know, what were people doing before um, you know they were coming to you know, speed scale? What what makes that transition so worth it? I guess. And you, I mean, you've uh, mentioned you hated certain types of tests, so maybe you have some <laughs> personal experience here. I, I, I do write <laughs> unit tests. I like unit tests, but uh, so.
3: Actually, there's a second question in there we'll we'll come back to, but the, the, which I think is interesting, but the, um, so unit tests, you should still write unit tests. Unit tests help you understand whether a particular function or, you know, like base level code item works properly. And of course, people should write unit tests. They're, they're the foundation building blocks. Now, what we challenge is, um, folks who go down one of two paths. The first one is they test every test and prod. Everything's test and prod. Mm -hmm. Now, Test and prod obviously is a useful thing to do. Canary releases are obviously useful. Mm-hmm. However, I believe they're being misused. Test mm-hmm. and prod is being misused. People are pushing things to prod, and what they're really saying is, "Let uh, your end users be your crash test dummies." Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a huge mistake. And so, um, so test and prod is is good in small, you know, is good in at moderate doses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, speed scale is an alternative to uh, letting your users test your software for you. Got now, it. the second path people go down to and this is for folks who have, uh, or applications that are a little bit older or you know, kind of been around a while, is they'll do things like integration tests or manual testing. Mm-hmm. And uh, first off, manual testing is just terrible and no one should be subjected to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a te- it's horrible, it's a terrible experience, right, to manual test. Obviously you have to manage that manual test a little bit, but um, SpeedScale helps get rid of that because effectively you have uh, thousands and thousands of, of real manual testers that you don't have to pay, mm-hmm. right? And that's the that's that piece. And the second thing is, is you can reduce your dependence on integration testing because SpeedScale is simulating the entire environment. So you can actually, instead of treating the testing problem as everything all at once, instead it's like we can test a component like we te- like we integration test because mm-hmm. all those mocks are auto-generated, it's reacting, the, the, the surrounding environment is acting like a real environment. Sure. And so we kind of, uh, we, we help you eliminate some of that integration test as well.
0: Got it. And um, the obvious one that I think I'm hearing is Auto auto generation of those mocks. You don't have to go write those either, right? So, I mean, I know that was a a way to do it in the past as well. You write a whole mock, uh, separate application to mock your whole environment. You add a new API, you got to add a new mock, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So,
3: normally you wouldn't do it. What you do is you give it to the new engineer that you don't like. (laughs) They they would go to that. <laughs> Got yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. Conceptually
2: though, yeah. <laughs> okay. Makes so, sense. Uh like this this really makes sense because of the application architectures that the way they are evolving, right? Now everything is API based, all the different like loosely coupled distributed application architectures for, rely on these APIs to work and all different components should be able to talk to each other. So this like fits in perfectly, right? Like you since your application is following this modern architecture, maybe twelve factor, uh you need something that, that fits this use case.
3: Mm-hmm. There's, there's actually an important thing you said as well around automation. You know, something I don't actually know. I tried to find out who said it originally, but I think I heard it when Kelsey Hightower said it, which is that you know treat your um uh tr- treat your servers like uh, like cattle, not pets. Yeah. And, and I actually think that 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 we're taking a similar philosophy to the way you do testing. So I think that you know people should stop treating these tests as these very carefully curated lovable things and instead just say, you know what, just blow it all away, replace it with a new version, you know, show me what that looks like, right? And and that's that's the kind of automation I think we, we need in the industry,
2: so. Gotcha. And like any any quote, right? If you don't know who it came from, it's in, at least in this ecosystem, it's say, it's a safe bet to uh, acknowledge like Kelsey for it. So that's, that's awesome. Okay, so next question, right? Uh, we, we spoke about how we uh, like capture data and do the that load testing. Uh, how does this work with some PII information or information that might not be like i'm assuming this is all abstracted away but just expand on that how how it, yeah. how it works yeah
3: so we have a built-in data loss prevention engine or dlp um, the most common one of the most common questions we get after is this is this real does it actually work is uh <laughs> is uh, is you know how do you protect my data yeah. and so um, in order to move into more sensitive environments customers demanded uh, really two things the first one is the ability to redact and mask information mm-hmm. upfront. And so we added that capability to our product um, to um, to basically, when we see certain patterns of information, we say, no, no, you know we're not going to send that along, and instead we replace it with something else that that's safe. So that's uh, that helps solve some of the the classic problem of moving production data back to test environments. Now, I'm not gonna I'm you know, I'm not gonna pretend there's still a discipline around test data management that people sure. pay tens of millions of dollars for. Mm-hmm. You know, there's very sophisticated solutions, and some of our partners you can use that, but we have a basic version of that. Now the second thing that we do is uh we actually do data replacement in sort of an unusual way. So if you think about the way our system works, we're we're basically putting the service inside a sandwich of of uh of of simulation, right? Mm-hmm. On one side of the sandwich, sandwich is all this these you know, test cases that we're generating. This, the other half of the sandwich is, this, uh, is are all these mocks that we're creating, and they have to agree with each other. Mm-hmm. So what we're, we're getting smarter about this is we'll say if we see something in a test case coming in, like let's say it's like a, a social security number, mm-hmm. then we see a subsequent call to a back-end database with the same social security number. Not only will we mask it, but we'll say, "Hey, that's actually this social security number those two things need to be the same when we generate the mock as Not when that. we generate the load Got test. It. And so that keeps like data consistency. That's gotcha.
2: very important. Yeah, and so uh, where is all of this data stored, right? like uh, I know developers, when, when they are running their tests as part of the CI pipelines, get access to this, but it, is it stored in, in their own environments? Is this a SaaS-based service that you host the data for everyone?
3: So right now, it's a SaaS-based service. Uh, It's a SaaS based solution that could be either multi-tenant if you want Mm -hmm. it cheaper, or it can be, you know, kind of, uh, it can be single tenant if you, Mm -hmm. if data privacy is very important to you. Um, so that's how we run it right Mm -hmm. now. We have had requests to move it on like fully hosted by the customer in their VPC or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we're very open to that, but that's, that obviously slows our velocity down. So we're kind of, uh, we haven't, we haven't moved across that bridge yet, but we, we certainly understand that problem and have designed for it.
0: God, it okay. makes sense. Um, I did. I want to come back real quick to some of the tools you mentioned. Um, Speedscale working with. Now you mentioned cer- service meshes like Istio. What other tools in the Kubernetes ecosystem are commonly used with Speedscale, or or maybe you use them internally yourselves?
3: Yeah, good question. So one of the things very commonly used is is Helm. Um, when we first started, so. Uh, We try to make all the mistakes that are possible so that our customers don't have to. Good. Uh, So so we've tested a bunch of different stuff and we find out what the market wants. Um, So we kind of started out by having folks edit YAMLs. um, Mm -hmm. And of course that people hate editing YAMLs, it turns out. So uh, no, no, I mean, I love it so much. I thought everyone did. Uh, So so Helm is very popular for us. Um, Another one is obviously customization. Mm-hmm. Or customize, yeah. customize is uh, is very popular as well, and uh, you know I think those two kind of are, you know uh, I don't want to say battling it out, but they're they're kind of for different use cases, mm-hmm. but have a similar use case. Uh, they they have a like severity of the use case. Sorry. Um, so the other ones we run into are are not necessarily a Kubernetes tool, but a technology which sure. is gRPC. Okay. Generally, if you're involved in this, um, we had to add gRPC support pretty early on. Um, there's also some interesting stuff we're seeing, new kind of monitoring tools like or uh, monitoring technologies like Open Telemetry, um, mm-hmm. which is I think is an interesting development. Obviously, as, as the libraries keep adding in uh, monitoring support, uh, then I think you see things like EBVF or Pixie or ContainIQ, yep. and so we work pretty much with them. Shout out to our partners. We also work with Datadog and New Relic, Postman, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but a lot of those tools there they're not Coopers any specific. So
2: that's right. So, uh, talking about ContainIQ, right, like that leads me into my next question. I was going through your website and looking at customer case studies to understand how customers are using your product. So, I, I found ContainIQ as a customer case study in my list. I think if I'm pronouncing it right, as a yeah. case study. If you can expand on how both of those customers are using SpeedScale and the value that they're getting out of it.
3: Yeah, so it's kind of two different takes on this, but they're representative of of, of chunks of our customers. So. <laughs> So Nihilus uh, went through a, um, they went through a transition from, uh, from one cloud provider to another cloud provider. And part of what they needed to do was it was reduce cost, right? And, uh, and, you know, make sure it was going to work properly, but also go to a new version of the technology that would, um, and speed up the API performance. So I believe the exact numbers are, uh, Nihilus was able to improve their API performance by 30x. Uh, through wow. their own hard work, using SpeedScale as well, um, so uh, they uh, w- what they ended up doing is being able to have a hyper rapid development cycle mm-hmm. by bringing back the the, the mocks, essentially auto mocks. Their engineers were able to just test, 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 and then load test like right on the fly, and not have to wait for environments to be spun up or test cases to be written. So that that helped them save, I think, quite a bit of money. Um, you know, being able to migrate to these new technologies, and then um, ContainIQ is representative of a more Uh, Sort of traditional, uh, traditional use of our product, which is also um, integrating us into CI, Mm -hmm. where you'll do things like every night, you know, run run a full battery of tests using SpeedScale. And unlike you know the integration or other testing approaches I talked about, you don't have to keep a giant environment stood up all the time. SpeedScale just goes, simulates a tiny little bit, runs the whole thing, and then you know you're now now you're good to go. And so you know it really is. It's all about shipping shipping faster and not having to do as many rollbacks. So.
0: Yeah, always two good things to have. (laughs) Makes sense. Now, um, you mentioned that SpeedScale is offered sort of as a SaaS service. Do you use any uh, technologies since this is, we often talk about data on Kubernetes. You are obviously dealing with lots of uh, different types of data, depending on what those APIs are. Do you store that data in a specific database? Do you run it on Kubernetes? What does that sort of environment look like for you?
3: Yeah, so one of our core technologies is timescale on Kubernetes. And so we run in cluster, and mm-hmm. uh, that is how we basically power our user interface. And so that UI, it's it's actually extremely fast uh, for our use case. So we'll take uh, when when you go and look at our traffic viewer, which is kind of like our our monitoring tool, although we're not mm-hmm. we're not strictly a monitoring tool. But we're when you go look at all that data, you're actually looking at a timescale interface where we're pulling up you know gigs and gigs and gigs and gigs of, of whatever the most recent data is, and then slicing and dicing it and sorting it producing mm-hmm. aggregates, and then uh, plugging that straight into our user interface. So that's that's one of the core technologies we use. We also use S3 in a more traditional sense. Mm-hmm. Once data ages out, we send it to long-term storage and other things, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. We have like kind of, people can use their own persistent volumes and other things to, to plug Absolutely.
1: that
0: Absolutely. Gotcha. Now, do you do you have uh, specific uh, operators that run TimescaleDB? How much time and effort are you putting to running that thing on Kubernetes? Um, you know, because we often hear, uh, different ways people are using data services on Kubernetes or choosing not to in some cases, or especially in in sort of a SaaS environment in the cloud, you might use uh, other types. I'm just curious about the, you know, what's the day in and day out um, of managing a database on Kubernetes like, if you can comment on it.
3: Yeah, so timescale. So the thing, <laughs> so a database in Kubernetes are built on two very different principles. You know, database is all about persistence and Kubernetes is all about ephemeral. Right. Um, So these are these have been some challenges for us over the year or the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. But at this point, we don't do a lot of maintenance of timescale from a manual perspective. We have a nightly maintenance jobs that run and update our counters and do other kinds of uh, cleanup tasks. But generally timescale is pretty reliable for us. Um, We you know, then again, we're also not storing stuff, you know, eons in the past. Right. Mm -hmm. We have a high data volume, but it's relatively ephemeral. You know, yep. cause it's, we, we store like whatever the latest amount of time is. So, um, but yeah, we, I mean, I really don't, I think we probably touch it, uh, you know, manually, we probably touch it a couple times a week. I know, not okay. even that much, maybe once a week we do That's anything. Not too bad. Yeah. No, it's not bad. It it wasn't like that two years ago, but it's gotten a lot better, (laughs) a lot better. So,
0: yeah, we like We like to hear that on this show. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. We we learned a a lot about timescale back in February, I believe it was. Yes. uh, When we interviewed them. So uh, really interesting technologies and honestly fits your use case perfectly. So good to
2: hear. Yep. So uh, like talking about uh time scale and how you can archive data for longer term storage right I know yep. you said in the initial part that developers get like a 30 day 30 hour, uh, minute snapshot for their testing like you always sure. have new data coming it's in. not set to 30 minutes but it's what it's whatever let's okay. just say amount amount of time. Minutes, <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah. uh how long do you have to keep the data for do you see customers asking for a load that like do you have to store those black friday load load numbers so that yeah. they can test it against it uh-huh. this year or, or how does that work? So we keep about thirty days of time a uh, thirty days of data for
3: mm-hmm. most customers so some customers just have too much data that you yeah. know even the laws <laughs> sure. of physics become a problem at some points but um, <laughs> the uh, um our uh yeah we tend to keep about thirty days worth of data instantly accessible on time scale, just always okay. ready to boogie and uh then uh you know we can we can basically rehydrate from S3 as necessary, Okay. you know? So um, now the, the, as far as developers, our policy is to hold data for 13 months. Um, that's a policy that we've never enforced yet because <laughs> we don't care, you know, it's not like it's super expensive to keep data around. Yep. So we're not, uh, so we never enforced it thus far, but uh, it's, it's about 13 mo- months is what we say. Thanks. Gotcha.
1: Nice, thank it. you. Waiting on a tax return. Hopefully it ends up in your hands.
0: Time to switch gears a little bit and ask our our last question for today's uh, interview, Mm -hmm. which is, if someone is listening to this podcast and is saying, wow, that timescale thing is really interesting and right up my alley, where do I get started and how do I get started? Where would would you send them? Yeah, so uh, first thing is to sign up for a free trial. Um, It takes...
3: If you have a normal kind of workload, it takes about 10 minutes to get our stuff stood up. Now, if you want to do something, if you want us to unwrap TLS or do other things or do dated, dated mutations, mm-hmm. which we can also do, then it can take a little bit longer. But just come set up for, sign up for a free trial. If you're not ready to sign up for a free trial, then come, into, um, go, come and join our community Slack. It's just slack.speedscale.com. And you can bother me pretty much any time because I'm probably up all night anyway, working on something. <laughs> so uh, we're always happy to talk to you.
0: Good, good. Um, And you mentioned you're able to get started just on a developer laptop, right? You don't need anything too special?
3: No, actually, we we have a, a tutorial. To, that uses my, my favorite uh name demo app called Potato Head. Uh, Potato Head. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: I have to yeah. look at that one
3: now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying it's my favorite demo, but my favorite name <laughs> for demo app ever. Yeah. But, uh, uh, and it runs on Minikube on a developer desktop. And actually our tutorial will walk you through as though you don't know anything about Kubernetes and we'll walk you know, you'll actually install Minikube, mm-hmm. install SpeedScale, and about fifteen minutes later you're you're gonna be running. Great. So.
0: That sounds like a great place to start. Well, Matt, I know I've learned a lot about speed scale over the last uh, 30 minutes or so, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. I think a lot of people will find this interesting and uh, will, you will know, love to have you back when uh, there's others, other cool news.
1: Sounds good. Thank you.
0: All right, well, it was great having Matt on the show. I don't know about you, Bob, but um, I came into this show really naive about what, Scott, what speed scale was. I even, even think I mentioned to you is like, I didn't do enough uh, to look into it and really understand it. But after the show and after talking to Matt, I really do understand it I see the value in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, what I got out of this was, right, automation, 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 right? In a day where uh, things are becoming more complex to do um, you know, similar things and, and and applications, like you said, are designed differently, right? Just the auto generation of these mocks and and, and the data that's kept around for you in sort of the SaaS based model, it definitely showcases where we're going as a market and where um, there's such value. Um, you know, we often point at the end product in production. Mm-hmm. What's what's the business value? But this is really aimed at the development, and I think um, this is really exciting stuff.
2: Yeah, and like similar to you, right? I, I come from an operations background, so I've like I, I do have a computer science major, but I've I've not like actually written any code in the past five to six years. Maybe that's uh, some people might be surprised with that. But <laughs> <laughs> so so I I did come into this conversation trying to learn more about how we are making lives easier for developers. Uh, so this was really cool that. Given the new way that we are building these applications, everything has to be distributed. Everything has to follow that 12 factor of uh, uh, best practices uh, way of building apps. Uh, having something that can test your APIs uh, against actual production uh, load is a really cool feature to have. Like, it, it will definitely help. Uh, customers move faster and I think that's something that he highlighted from the customer case studies we discussed, right? Like it, it helped contain IQ or Nylist, like move faster, iterate at a faster speed because they didn't have to worry about making sure whether uh, they are testing it against enough load. I've personally seen examples where uh, before anything goes GA, there, there needs to be like a 50 or 100 Kubernetes cluster deployed and tested out and making sure any product that goes GA is tested for load. So this makes it easy, makes, makes it at the API level. So and uh, again, I've become a big fan, as you can really tell. Uh, and as you, as as uh, Matt said, right, like it's it's really easy to get started. So why not like talk about how to do it?
0: Yeah, and uh, going on the easy to get started, the fact that you could just you know boot it up on your laptop using something like Minikube. These days, I feel like that's so powerful, right? Mm-hmm. To- especially from it a developer mindset, right? Yeah. You really do want everything to be able to run on your, on your laptop um, as much as possible. I mean, I know there's lots of services coming out that are, you know, virtual and you can, you know, have, an, you know, entire IDEs and development environments sort of come to you, which is really cool. But uh, still this notion of being able to get started really quick is, is always exciting. Cool. So that was the end of the episode. Um, again, We'll, you know, drive home that, you know, whoever's listening, really go check out our other content or other episodes, uh, leave us a message, leave us, uh, anything, uh, positive, negative, what you'd like to hear, what topics you'd, um, you haven't heard yet that you really like to get, uh, a listen to. And, um, please wear a review us wherever you can on wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, we'll have another episode in a couple weeks. And, uh, that brings us to the end of today's episode. I'm Ryan. I'm Bobbin. And thanks for joining another episode of Kubernetes Bytes. Thank you for listening to the Kubernetes Bytes podcast.